0: Hey guys, again, welcome. We are so excited to welcome our guest speaker this morning, Gary Burge, he spoke at Willow Creek for over 15 years down in Chicago, was a professor at Wheaton College for over 25, and as of 2017, is now a professor at Calvin Sem. So would you guys join me in welcoming Gary Burge? Well, good morning great to be with you guys, and it is a delight to be here in Grand Rapids, it is. And to be on the campus of Calvin, <clears throat> there's a small college over there too, that we're on the campus of. I hear there's some Calvin, Calvin College students that come here, right, is that something like that? Yeah. So anyway, it's good. I am learning things about Calvin College all the time. There's this cafe on campus that is called Johnny's, you know, so I've eaten there a few times. I just found out last week, it's named after John Calvin. I just thought that was funny. I did not know that until last week. Whatever. Okay, so anyway, it is wonderful to be here. I've heard about Encounter Church uh, for a long time, all year, being at uh, the seminary, and you guys have an amazing reputation. You have a Starbucks out there, for heaven's sakes. It is amazing. (laughs) I walked in, you know, and I thought, and you can get food out there, too. What in the world? So breakfast out there, and you can bring it in here, you're even phone friendly. I mean, what, how did you guys get all these resources? And you've, nobody else seems to have them. It's really incredible. You have a fantastic church. And you have Zach and Dirk in here. What in the world? You have some amazing pastors and leaders too. Plus, on top of all of that, you have one of our interns here, Daniel Jude. You guys know Daniel? He's right down here in front. He's a CTS student um, who's usually just really an okay guy despite what they all say. Anyway, I hope he's behaving. If not, my extension of the seminary is 6032. Just give me a call. Um, His parents give me extra money to keep an eye on him. Well, this morning I would like to talk with you about a passage out of the book of Revelation. I know you're doing this series called I Quit. And I think that there is this case study here in the book of Revelation of a church and Christians inside of the church that need to quit something. And that's what we want to look at. In fact, this is a church that has got its life completely tangled up in money. It's a church that has got its life completely tangled up in prosperity and success, their own sense of confidence that they can actually establish a secure and meaningful life. And they have edged Jesus to the perimeter. And Jesus knows this. So therefore, we are going to look at what Jesus has to say to this one church 2,000 years ago uh, in one part of the world. Now, wealth and prosperity. These are really mysterious things for us. They attract us. I love money. I love prosperity. Do you like money? Anyway, it's incredible how it has this seductive pull to each of us. It really does. I just love this stuff. I remember um, maybe the only time I really felt wealthy was when I was about 16 or 17 years old. Um, I got my first job and I was, uh, I'm from Southern California originally and so everybody played golf in my family, it was a big golfing family. So I thought, I know, I'll get a job at the country club and somehow I had this imagined, you know, that I would be inside the clubhouse and I'd be wearing these cool pink shirts and I would be, and of course all of the girls are gonna think I'm very cool. Anyway, so I had this idea that I'd be working in the coolest place ever. They sent me to the driving range And it wasn't actually a time where you got to drive a cart and scoop them up. Driving range, you pick them up by hand. It was the worst job in the whole world. Never mind. So I remember my first payday, and my boss at the country club peeled off for me three $20 bills. I mean, when you're 16 years old, you're like, what? You got 20 bucks. I felt so rich. It was like so intoxicating. I was drunk with value. And then I spent it all in one week. You know how that goes. Anyway, so we have a church that we're going to study that has a lot of money. It has wealth, it has success, prosperity, and the church is sabotaged by its own cash. This will be interesting. So I have a question for you, and this is the question. If there was a question that I would hope you would take with you as you leave Encounter this morning, I, I hope this is a question that you would sort of think about, digest, and see where you stand with it. Can you be materially rich but spiritually poor? Can you be materially rich but spiritually poor? Oh, let's do it another way. This one is tattoo worthy. Can wealth lead to poverty? Now, that's more provocative. Can wealth lead to poverty? Now, there's a trap in this for all of us because as soon as I hear somebody talking about wealth and somehow that being corrupting and dangerous and all that kind of thing, immediately I have head talk that says something like this to me, oh, but I'm not wealthy. I know who's wealthy out there, but it isn't me. By any international or historical standard, everybody in this room is wealthy. If you have access to a car if you are basically eating decent meals, if you have a residence in which there is controlled heating and air conditioning, if you've had access to education, you are already wealthy. So therefore the question isn't, how do we measure who's wealthy? And I'm just gonna point at the top 1%. No, the question is, what, what point in your life have you constructed a system of security which includes money that no longer requires Jesus? That's the question. And so I ask you guys, can wealth or the pursuit, the successful pursuit of security, lead you to poverty? That's the question I have for you. Now, as you open the book of Revelation, at the very beginning, what you find in the first three chapters are letters. Letters to seven churches in an area that we call Asia Minor. And as you read these seven letters, um, John is having a vision. John the Apostle who is writing the book of Revelation, he's having this vision. And Jesus speaks to him in this vision. And he has a message for each of these seven churches. Now the greatest mistake that you and I can make is we read these seven letters and we say to ourselves, whoa, look at these seven churches 2,000 years ago. They really were messed up. And so therefore you historicize these letters. They're just from the ancient world, and their life sucked. But on the contrary, these letters are actually diagnostic tools. Because even though you may have read one of these letters from Sardis or Laodicea or Ephesus or something, what you find inside of each of these churches can diagnose us inside of this church. So it's possible that you may have lived in Laodicea at one time in your life, or you may be living in Laodicea right now. Okay, so let me do a really school-type thing, okay? Let me put a map on the screen so I can tell you or show you what we're talking about. So the, of course, most of you know from somewhere in the 11th grade that this is modern-day Turkey or we call it, in geography, Anatolia or Asia Minor. You can see that off to the left is uh, the Aegean Sea, and beyond that is Greece. So therefore, here in this area of western, the left side of Anatolia, the box is sitting on an area where these seven churches exist. I made another map for you guys. Here is actually what they look like. So you can see I've got seven of them here, beginning with Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatria, and you can see the seven churches going. Now, one of the things you don't want to do is overinterpret the seven churches in their sequence. Some people do this. Oh my gosh, number one must mean this, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, 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 no. They are in this order because this is an ancient Roman mail route. That's not profound. <laughs> So somebody carrying a courier, carrying copies of the book of Revelation with these letters inside of it, just said, I'm just going on the Pony Express and I'm taking off from Ephesus to Smyrna, Pergamum, and all the way down, and you end up at Laodicea. See how that goes? It's just simply a trade route. There were good restaurants all along the way, so stay on the route. Okay. So therefore, as you move down through these letters, you finally will end up in something called the Lycus Valley. Here's the last slide I've got for you. As you move down south there is this region, it's actually called Phrygia, down in the south. And inside of it there is this valley called the Lycus Valley. You can see it up there. You can see on the right side of the screen there is Colossae, the book of Colossians comes into to that city. You can see Hierapolis up there and you can see Laodicea up there. Now the reason I made that map for you is because of this. Laodicea is kind of like Chicago. I mean, why does Chicago exist? Whenever I travel someplace in the world, I always wonder the question, why is Delhi where it is? Where's London? Why did it get there? Chicago is not there because of natural resources. Trust me, I lived there 25 years. <laughs> I mean, the place was named after a very smelly onion that the Native Americans called the Algonquin said, you know, it means stinky onion. Well, that's Chicago too. Anyway, Chicago was a hub for, for trade and commerce. So therefore, originally ships could get their way through there, but also trains. Have you ever seen the main Chicago train hub down in downtown? It's amazing. So it's a train routing area and today you've got O'Hare. So therefore, it is a commerce center. Laodicea was this as well. If you came from the west, from Ephesus, you would actually come up a valley and there you were at Laodicea. You came from north to south, right through the Lycus Valley. So these cities inside of the Lycus Valley were growing because of what they offered to people who were moving back and forth through this area. Now, you can see that there is a river that runs through it, all right? And you can see that what the cities had to do was stay away from the river because it flooded quite a bit. And so Hierapolis is to the north, and you can see Laodicea is to the south, but it sits up on a plateau. But as these places grew, they really couldn't go down to this river to get their water, it's pretty far away. So therefore, they had to build an aqueduct system. Here, take a look. That is the Laodicean aqueduct. You can, whenever you see something like that in the Roman world, you know there were amazing engineers and a lot of cash that could build that thing. That baby goes for six miles. So they went up into the mountains, they found wonderful cold water up in the mountains, they found a spring, and then they basically piped it all the way down to Laodicea. Now the city of Laodicea was actually famous for three things. If you were in the city of Rome and you mentioned Hierapolis, people would think, oh, whatever, what is that? But if you mentioned Laodicea, you were well known. Let me give you the three things that they were famous for and how they became wealthy. First, they were great with textiles, here's what I mean. Um, The manufacture of clothing in the ancient world, most of it came from wool production. And therefore, the average person would wear a tunic, falls from the shoulder, down to the elbow, and basically hits your knee, a tunic, right? you had you had if you want to look really cool if I want to a look cool anyway strappy sandals that came all the way up to your knee tunic that comes down to here whatever and then you know you had a very nicely trimmed beard unless you were a woman and then you had short hair that was the cool way to be if you were a roman so anyway um, as you um, as you lived in the roman world and somebody said loud you say, somebody would say well okay the wool production comes from Western Anatolia, but the Laodiceans said this, let's see if we can create a market for a kind of clothing that nobody else can have. So what they did is they went out and they cultivated, they, and a flock, uh, flock, in a flock, a, in a, if you owned a lot of sheep, what you would be able to do is find that there were some sheep that actually had black wool. And they would buy these and they began to grow these large, large uh, flocks of animals that were all black wool. And they inbred this stuff so they had lots of black wool and they said to themselves, we are going to generate a clothing industry that will give you a black tunic. Now, that doesn't seem really spectacular to you, I get that. But they were generating black carpet, they were generating black wool, black clothing, and if you were in Rome and you had a really cool outfit, it would not be the old white tunic, it would actually be a black one with a little logo here like a mountain that had a little stripe right here and it would actually say Laodicea. Anyway, that's North Face by the way. <laughs> Anyhow, so they were known for this, in fact there was a name for this in Greek. It was a Tremita. That was a black outfit, that's what I think, it would say Tremita right here, right? And the town of Laodicea was actually known for this. Tributaria was the nickname for the city. So if you wanted to have cool clothes, that's where you went, Laudizia. Second thing it was known for was, we would call it banking. But let me explain this to you. The ancient world had a very interesting problem. They really didn't have a banking system in the Roman world like you and I would imagine it. But let's just think for imagine that you and I, you happen to be someone who is a business leader. You were running around the Aegean Sea and you were doing huge trades. In olive oil, wool, textile, it doesn't make any difference. How do you buy what it is you want to take back to the place you will sell? You see what the problem is? So therefore, are you going to carry all of the cash? It's all hard currency, by the way. It's heavy. It's in coin. Are you going to carry all that in bags in your caravan? My gosh, imagine. You might as well put a sign up on the side of your caravan that says, Rob us here. I mean, it's dangerous. So therefore... Places like Daodicea said, what we ought to do is permit caravans to come through, and we will have a government-protected building in which you can deposit your coins. And if you leave us 10,000 gold coins, we will back up its safety with with our own city. Does that sound like a great idea? I go off, I make my trade... And actually, I can give a credit receipt to the person I've purchased and they can come to Laodicea and pl- collect their coins. Do you see how that works? That's what you call banking. They were working that out in Laodicea because they were on a trade route. And of course, have you ever heard a bank that didn't make a profit when money was crossing the table? They made money off of it. Third thing that they had was a medical school. Now, one of the things, they, two things that they invented here. People knew about the Laodicean Medical School for a long time, it was really a big deal. Here's what they started, it's called compounding pharmaceuticals. Let me explain. In the ancient world, generally what they would do is they would say, I have an ailment, my stomach hurts, and there's a plant over there, and a doctor would know all of the plants that grow, and they would say, take that plant, ingest the plant, and it will help your ailment. One-to-one correspondence between illness, and medicine, you see how that works? At Laodicea in the medical school, they said, we are going to compound pharmaceuticals, meaning we are going to experiment. It isn't just that plant, but we're gonna add to it that plant, that plant, and that plant, with some minerals, grind it all up together, and give you a drink. Every medicine you take today has some kind of compounding um, uh, sort of elements inside of it. We mix them all the time. Laodicea? They're inventing this stuff. It's incredible. But the biggest invention was that for eye disease, like pink eye and that kind of thing, in the ancient world, they really struggled with what to do with eye disease. And therefore, here in Phrygia, they created a a balm, a salve, that you could actually put in your eyes. It was called Phrygian salve, and it would cure eye issues. So they had a whole medical school devoted to this kind of thing. You know, being in this town, it's like being a town of 10,000 And you've got the headquarters of North Face, Chase Bank, and CVS Pharmacy sitting in a town of 10,000. Are you going to be rich or what? Of course you are. This town was so rich, in AD 60, there was an earthquake that went through the Lycus Valley and decked all of the temples, all of the buildings, just crushed them. It was a terrible earthquake. They still have them today there. And inside of this valley, the Romans came, the Romans had a system for helping you rebuild your city after an earthquake, kind of like our FEMA. And so therefore, Rome came to the Lycus Valley, they, they love the Lycus Valley because this is a trade center, and they said, let us help you rebuild. Hierapolis got tons of money, Colossae rebuilt, they came to the Laodiceans, this is in Roman history, and the Laodiceans said, we don't need any Roman money, we will build our own city, tell everyone in Rome, were that wealthy. Nice, okay, so much for Houston. So therefore, this is a town that is incredibly wealthy. It is known for this. But here's the last thing, the real kicker that gives it to you. In the Roman world, the Romans selected very carefully what they called imperial honorific cities. That meant if a city competed with its others, and they were selected to have this imperial status, they were invited to build a temple to the emperor. This is a very big honor. If the emperor, Augustus, is traveling through the area, where is he going to stay? In his imperial city. If he is going to go to the temple to worship, where will he go? To his own temple, because inside it's a statue of him to worship. Wonderful. So Lauditia is an imperial honorific city, meaning it is on a short list of the great cities of the Roman Empire. I grabbed some pictures of uh, Laodicea. You want to see what it looks like? Watch this. Here is what's called the cardo, the main road that takes you into Laodicea. When you see a street like that, which is convex, so the water runs off of it, there's a gutter system, there's a sidewalk, there are columns giving you shade over the street, and there's even shops on the sides, you know that you are looking at a high-class city. That's what Laodicea looks like. Look at this next slide. When you see a theater like that in the ruins of a city like Laodicea, you know they have a tremendous entertainment industry. They have an industry for drama, music. They actually have got wild animal games going on at the bottom of that, uh, that, that theater. It's an incredible place. When you see this, you know this is not a small place. And then thirdly, look at this picture here. This is one of the imperial temples, which was down in Laodicea, and this is one of the things that everyone would have been very, very proud of. All right. So we know that the city is all about textiles. It's got a clothing industry. Don't worry, I'm going to use all of this stuff in a moment, the Book of Revelation. <laughs> Secondly, they're in the banking. They're proud of the money thing, and they're in the medicine, especially the ideal, deal. All right. Okay. All right. So therefore, that brings us then to what we have here in the book of Revelation. If you, listen, we're going to look at the text now and let's see how it is that Jesus speaks to this church. Now, in every one of the letters, in six of them, you have the same form. Jesus introduces himself just as you do in an ancient letter. There's some kind of commendation where Jesus compliments the church because they're doing some things right. And then Jesus has a complaint about how they are living their life and there are some consequences. Fix what's wrong or else here's what will happen. So let's look at the title. Jesus says this to Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. So at the opening of the letter, Jesus gives his self-introduction. He is the amen. It's a Hebrew phrase. It just simply means true. He's the true one. He's the one who tells the truth. God is the great amen in Isaiah 65. So therefore, this is a word coming to Laodicea from God himself. And then Jesus says, I am the faithful and true. Well, that just is amen, but it's placed in Greek, for those of you who don't have a Hebrew background. Okay. So therefore, we know this is from Jesus, who in John's gospel is described as the truth. Yes, he's telling truth, and truth is what comes from God. And then he says, I am the ruler of all creation. That is so sketchy. Do you know who says that kind of stuff? That's Augustus. That is the emperor of Rome. He is the guy who likes that title. You can see it in all kinds of inscriptions. He's the ruler of all creation. Jesus says, I'm the ruler of all creation. It's really scandalous. All right. So I've got the title. I know who Jesus is. The next thing I should read, as I do in six of the letters, is a commendation where Jesus compliments the church. But here's the weird thing. At Laodicea, there is no compliment. None. What? Jesus can't find anything at Laodicea to be happy about? And then we find the complaints. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. By the way, when you are translating, when people translate, make Bibles and stuff, they don't know if they can really say exactly what the original language said. It doesn't actually say here, spit you out of my mouth. Want me to tell you what it really says? Actually, it says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I'm going, to. yeah, that's what it says here. So anyway, Jesus says, you're not hot nor cold, and you make me want to heave, but you can't say that in church, so forget I said that. (laughs) So consequently, what is Jesus talking about here? What is the problem? There's a water issue in this valley, and that's what Jesus is referring to. So take a look at this. You can see that if you look across the valley, one of the things you have, because the earthquakes tell you this is a geothermal area, and you have earthquakes, but you also have hot mineral springs all over the place. Here is Hierapolis, You've got hot mineral springs. Romans loved this. You got into the springs. You, you were able to sort of heal everything that ails you. I was in Hierapolis about weeks ago in March, and I was staying at a hotel at Hierapolis, and I thought, oh, 2,000-year-old Roman mineral springs. There was a mineral springs right in my uh, hotel. So I thought, I'm going to go in at night and just see what it's like. So there I was, kind of like, OK, doing my Roman thing. It was so amazing until 20 Russian tourists join me in speedos. I got out. So, mineral springs are all over the place, but it's hot water! I love this! The other thing is, they know about cold water too, because it comes out of the mountains, they pipe it down, it looks really nice. Here, look at this. These are Roman pipeworks that are on the ground in the Lycus Valley. Is that cool or what? They actually take a stone that was gigantic, you could never lift one of these things, they drill out the center and line it with plaster, and then they can send the water down the mountain and it's insulated and it stays cold. That's incredibly cool. Hot water? Yeah, for mineral springs, love it. Cold water for the mountains? Yeah, love that too. You know, the Romans had a real attitude, it's in all their writings about cold and hot water, it's really weird. They say, we love hot water because we bathe in hot water. We like hot drinks. We like cold water because it's refreshing. It comes from the mountains and the snow. We love all that. But they have this real weird thing about lukewarm anything. It's really funny. They say, if you have lukewarm water, give it to your slaves. It's in Roman writing like that. It's really strange. We have this in our culture too, you guys. We totally do. You go into Starbucks. If you order a latte... Hot or cold? Hot. 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 Oh, okay. You don't do lattes. All right. If you go into Starbucks and you order hot coffee, it is hot. If you go in and get a frappuccino, it is cold. So we get this. Whenever, sometimes, not you guys. You have an amazing. You go to church. Coffee. Have you ever had coffee that was brewed about twelve hours ago? and you pour it and it's like lukewarm. What do you want to do when you drink that stuff? Of course, you want to heave. So, therefore, what you have here is a kind of play on the whole idea of Rome and water. Now, people have so misrepresented this passage. Let me show you how it's been misrepresented. Some people have said, okay, this is what Jesus means. I wish that you were hot because that means you have a passion for Jesus. I even wish that you were cold, but but no, I'm sorry. But some of you, if you were cold, that means you have no passion, no love for Jesus. You're neither hot nor cold. Instead, you're this lukewarm thing and it makes me sick. That is the basis of, by the way, of tons of junior high and high school sermons. In other words, you don't love Jesus. You don't hate Jesus. You're just sitting on the fence because your parents made you go to church your whole life. Don't you know that just makes Jesus sick? Have you heard that sermon before? So bad. But interpreters know that's the wrong way to take this passage. It's just not what Jesus is saying. Look at the next slide. So instead, this is what's going on in the story. Jesus says, I wish that you were hot because we love the Hotel Springs at Hierapolis or it would be awesome if you were cold because from the Cadmus Mountains through the pipes, there's incredibly good water. But you're lukewarm. You're in the middle. Bad frappuccino, worse latte. You're somewhere in the middle here, and it just makes me ill. So therefore, you have Jesus worried about this. It's really just troubling. Look at what happens here next. So Jesus then says, look, you and Laodicea, you say, I am rich. He's quoting the Laodiceans. You say, I have acquired wealth and don't need anything. Do you get it? It's about Laodicean wealth. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor. Oh, they don't like to hear that. Blind. Get it? Medical school? The eye thing? Yeah, yeah. Naked. What? We all have cool tunics. <laughs> I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear. Do you get it? Oh, yeah. He is, he's pulling all the strings. So you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve. To put on your, what does it say? Oh man, of course. Because you're blind, man, and you can't see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So here I've got a church. I've got a church that has got three things that they think have set them up. Here, I made a little chart of it for you here. They say they're wealthy. They say they are well clothed. They say that they are, they've got the greatest medical school ever to heal any kind of eye disease. Jesus says, get your wealth from me for heaven's sakes. Let me clothe you for heaven's sakes. And let me give you vision so you will see clearly what is going on. You have stacked up all these things in your life, you have been an architect. You have been an architect of a life that will give you security and joy and comfort and hopefulness. But you've been digging in all the wrong trenches. You've been shopping in all the wrong stores. You're blind and naked and poor and you don't even know it. Now, in every other letter in the book of Revelation, there are frightening consequences. The lampstand of the church is going to be removed, or Jesus shows up with a sword, he says. But here in the Auditia, the worst church of the entire bunch, there is no judgment. No judgment on these guys? No judgment. Only An invitation. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is simply saying to these people, and please, if you would remember, this is not addressed to non-Christians, and Jesus is knocking on the door of a non-Christian who needs to let him into their life. Jesus is talking to Christians in a very successful city. Jesus is saying, I want into your life. I want to eat with you. That's fellowship. This is a church that has made Jesus an artifact. This is a church that has turned Jesus into a spiritual souvenir. This is a church that has put Jesus on the screen but not in their hearts. This is a church in which Jesus is a token and nothing more. Jesus says, I want you to reign, I want you to rule with me. I want you to join me on my throne. Look at this, this is very cool. You know, there was, in the Roman world, a kind of interesting problem that the emperor always had. What do you do when the emperor has another ruler from another place come and visit him in Rome? He actually would switch out his throne, and this is called a basilium, he would actually put a two-seater throne in his imperial residence. Isn't that neat? I got the left one from a book. It looks pretty old, but whatever, it works. But if you look on the coin to the right, That is a coin from Augustus, and you can see that in the coin on the right, he's actually sitting alongside of another ruler on a double throne. Isn't that neat? That's Augustus, the emperor, sharing his throne with someone else. Look at this. I've got a piece of jewelry here that I want to show you. This is a pendant that comes from 2,000 years ago. It's a gorgeous piece of jewelry. I think it's made from ivory. And if you look at the upper panel, you'll see in the upper panel that Augustus is sitting on a double throne, and that is Nike, by the way, the goddess Nike, who is actually putting a laurel wreath of victory over Augustus' head. You see it? The wreath is coming onto Augustus' head. He is sitting on the throne with Roma, the Greek god, a Roman goddess, who controls the fate of the city of Rome. So Augustus is saying in this piece of art that he is ruling the empire, but he is aware he shares his throne with the Roman gods. You see how it goes? So Jesus is saying, I want you to sit on my throne with me. I'm reserving a seat for you on my basilium. I want you to be here with me so that you also will be victorious. So the root problem here, and this is and I call it the Laodicean problem. Remember, it's a Christian issue. Material wealth. Success in this life has led to spiritual poverty. And the result of their achievements has led to self-sufficiency. If they are worried about anything in their lives, they know they can fix it with their own ingenuity and resources. So why not push Jesus to the patio? So why not put him in the garden? Turn him into a beautiful Roman statue so that whenever somebody comes to your house, they can nod at the beauty of the Jesus statue outside, but when they get inside, it is all Roman. Yes, that's it. Put Jesus in the garden. Here's the part of this message that I love. And if it describes you And this is what you need to hear this morning. If this describes you and me and our own sense of self-sufficiency that has led us to be architects of a life that has no place for trusting Jesus. Jesus' last word to you is not judgment. Hear that, my friends. He's concerned. He's warning you about what that life looks like. He is just simply telling us the truth. He is the great Amen. Jesus' last word to you and to me, if this is your life, is grace and welcome. That's his last word. His last word to us is let me in, break the statue, open the door. Let me in. I want to have a meal with you. I want you and I to share a Nike life, a victorious life. Jesus would say to us, don't become an architect of a life that is measured by what you've accumulated. An architect of a life that is measured by what is in your heart Amen Let's pray, shall we Lord God we thank you for these bold words that come from Jesus to Laodicea And Lord, we pray that we would be able to hear them as well. Give us courage to diagnose ourselves, to welcome you in, and make you the center of all that we are. We pray in Jesus' precious name and all of God's people said,